Lord God, we, we thank you for your word, God. We, we thank you, Lord, that it produces something supernatural inside of us, God. And Lord, we pray this morning that, that you would just cause our hearts to be good soil to receive this seed that is the word, God, that, that it would produce fruit in our lives, God, and that it would change us to be more like you, to be better for you, and to be better equipped to be used for your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, here in Acts chapter 20, uh, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's visiting some of the churches in Asia that he had started. And speaking to the Ephesian elders, he began to talk about all the stuff that he had been through, all the trials and stuff. He, he had been attacked by many mobs and riots. Uh, he'd been... Uh, well, he hadn't yet been shipwrecked. He would be shipwrecked, but he had gone through a whole lot of stuff, and he had dedicated his life from the time that he was converted up until this point to really uh, a 100% ministry for Jesus. And uh, he began to have some prophecies in his life that uh, if he went back to Jerusalem, then he would be arrested and, and put in chains. And people began to tell this to him over and over again. You know, they say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, I had a dream and I saw you and you were imprisoned when you went to Jerusalem. But he felt in his heart that he was supposed to go there. He felt led by the Lord. And, uh, and this is what he said in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He said, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And this morning I want to talk to you about finishing strong. Finishing was a repeated theme in, a, in Paul's uh, epistles and in his letters. He talked about it a lot. And, uh, you know, he spoke about the eternal prize and rewards that we would receive if we finish strong. He talked about pressing on towards the goal. He talked about pressing on towards the mark. And here, after all he had done, he said, my life would be worth nothing. It wouldn't count for anything, in my opinion, if I didn't finish strong. And so it's very important, especially being that Paul wrote most of the New Testament, that we look at this aspect of, of finishing. And so I want to show you in the last couple of days of Jesus' life how he is an example and some of the people around him were examples of finishing in different ways. And uh, first we'll, we'll start in Matthew chapter 26, and then we'll hop over and read most of the text in John this morning. And this is right after the Last Supper. They had, they had been together in the upper room in the Last Supper. Judas Iscariot, who we're going to talk about a little bit, had gone, and, and he was working on the betrayal of Jesus. And Jesus brought the other 11 disciples with him into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. And starting in verse 36 here, it says, Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. 
stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, and he's speaking of the cross, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. Now there's something that we need to understand about Jesus. The first 30 years of his life, he had lived a more righteous life than any person in the history of the world had ever lived. The Bible says that Jesus was without sin. And then the three years previous to this point, Jesus had the most anointed, powerful, effective uh, ministry, I mean, that anyone in the history of the world had ever had. He was the greatest uh, prophet, teacher, and minister that the world had ever seen or will ever see up to this point. But he was always conscious of what he called his hour. And his hour was the cross. He always spoke of of the hour. And up to this point, uh, this last week or so of Jesus' life, he refused to be openly recognized as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world, as the Son of God. But now he's coming into his hour. He's coming into his hour and he's beginning to focus in on on this this last work that, that that God had for him. And he knew that despite everything that he had done before, all the miracles, all the teaching, all the ministry, this perfect life that no other man in the history of the world had ever lived, he began to realize that despite all that, that it would mean absolutely nothing if he didn't finish strong, if he didn't continue on to the cross. And uh, this was the greatest challenge in the history of, of mankind to to deny yourself, for for a man to deny himself, literally take up the cross and follow after the will of God. And and, and we find Jesus in this difficult moment, but we see a key here. Uh, One of the keys to finishing strong is, is that Jesus elevated himself to the place of submission through prayer. The Bible says that he became anguished and distressed on, on the inside And his response to that is that he prayed. He overcame the flesh as we should on every level by walking in the Spirit. And he did that. He he, he found himself, he elevated himself from that place of anguish to the Spirit in prayer. He chose to finish strong. Now look at uh, verse 44 here. It says, So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And you see, it was during that third time of prayer that Jesus found victory in the peace of God. He had to go back three times. It was that continual prayer. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, uh, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. 
Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, that peace that Jesus experienced, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that power came to Jesus' prayer. No longer was He distressed and anguished, but He began to own the moment that God was calling Him into. He received power in that moment of prayer. Uh, and that was, there was a reason for that. Two reasons. Number one, He knew the Word of God. And secondly, He was walking in the Spirit. And a lack of either one of those things will greatly weaken our prayers. But if we can partner with prayer, that knowledge of the Word of God, and that, that elevation of our inner man to the spiritual from the flesh, then there's great power in our prayers. And it's by strengthening ourselves in prayer with the foundation of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit that we find the strength to finish strong. So now I want to hop over to John chapter 18, and it, where we're going to start in verse 1, give some insight about what was going on elsewhere as Jesus was praying in the garden. So we'll hop over there. I taught Sunday school this morning. I've been yelling over kids. Uh, in verse 1, it says, After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered into the grove of olive trees, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had, gone, had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Now Judas was one of the disciples. He was one of the twelve. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about the background of Judas or his calling, but we do know that he was called specifically by Jesus to be one of the twelve that Jesus would prepare by, by personal relationship to, to start the church. We know that uh, Judas was involved in the ministry of the disciples. In fact, uh, in, let's see, uh, in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus was commissioning the disciples to uh, go and heal the sick and cast out evil spirits, Judas was with them, and he participated in that ministry. Uh, he was also the treasurer of the disciples' money. And we're told that at one point, he began to take from the treasury for the ministry, and he began to pocket the money for himself. And I believe that that was the factor, that was the point, that was the little crack in Judas's armor that began to whittle away at his uh, focus being on God's purpose for his life, and he began to focus on Judas's purpose for his life. You know, he began to enter into the flesh, and, and just like... For all of us, it always begins with a very small thing. And if we continue to entertain those things, it will elevate itself to a very large thing. Because the Bible tells us that, that you know, it doesn't give us all the details of Judas's decline, but we know that at one point he went from the place of ministering with the disciples to the point where at the last, at the last supper, the Bible says that the devil entered into him to guide him to betray the Lord. You know, and so uh, Judas 
Judas started well, but he did not finish strong. You know, and I believe that even after he betrayed Jesus, I believe that had Judas repented genuinely to God, that God would have forgiven him, that God would have restored him, that God would have continued to use him. Sadly, though, rather than repenting of his sin, Judas took his own life. You know, I believe that the great failure of Judas's life was not the betrayal of Jesus. I believe that the great failure of Judas was that when he fell down, he did not get back up. He let his failure get the best of him, and he didn't get back up. He didn't allow God to restore him because he did not come back to God and ask for repentance and forgiveness. And because of that, he didn't finish strong. And because of that, we remember him as Judas the traitor and not Judas the minister. You know? He didn't get back up. So continuing here in verse 4, it says, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for, he asked. Jesus, the Nazarene, he replied. Now watch this. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew a sword. Take note of this because we'll, we'll kind of talk about Peter here in a bit. Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Now I want you to take note of the power of Jesus in this moment. You know, so often Jesus is depicted as a very meek and kind of, to me, weak-looking man. But Jesus was a man of power. He was a man of great power. He walked in the power of God more than any person has ever walked in the power of God. And when He declared that He was, I am, the Bible says that, that the mob that had come to arrest Him was literally knocked off their feet by the power of that statement. A more literal way to interpret the Greek, which is the, the language that the New Testament is written in, a more literal way to interpret what Jesus said there is, He said, the I Am is here. That's the name of God, the I Am. He is the becoming one. God is the one who becomes all that we need. He is the I Am. You know, you've, you've heard the names Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, uh, Jehovah Shalom. Those names were the declaration of God becoming what man needed in that moment. And Jesus Christ is Jehovah Shua, the Lord saves. Because man was desperately lost without Jesus Christ. And God became man to save man. And Jesus was declaring there for, I think, the first time that
that he was God directly in a statement. He said, the I am is here. I am the I am. I am God. I'm the one that you're looking for. And the Bible says that it knocked them off their feet. You know, the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns the second time, that he'll destroy his enemy, not with sword and with spear or with guns or anything like that, but with the word of his mouth. Jesus, from his mouth, you know, the Bible says that all things were created through him, and in, in him all things are created. It was the same mouth that spoke the world into existence. It was the same mouth that spoke, be healed, and men were healed. It was the same mouth that called the dead man forth, and the dead man got up out of his grave and he rose. And that's the mouth of power that was speaking here. We should never think that in that moment that Jesus was not fully and completely in control, because he was. But he willingly laid down his life for the will of God and for His love for us. It wasn't the mob that arrested and, and, and executed Jesus. Jesus laid down His life. He knew that in order to finish strong, He had to restrain His power and submit Himself to God. You know, and that's a powerful thing. So let's continue reading the story. Verse 15. Look, we'll see a little bit about Peter. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as did another of the disciples, who's John. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood, stood with them, warming himself. And then in verse 19 through 24, we're given uh, a little bit of detail about Jesus' trial before uh, Annas, the Jewish high priest. And uh, then picking up again in verse 25, it says, Meanwhile, as Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Now in uh, Luke's Gospel... In Luke 22, verse 61, we're given a little bit of detail about what happened right after Peter's third denial. It says, At that moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. See, Peter was a fisherman by trade. And like Judas, he was called by Jesus, picked by hand, to be one of the twelve. He was a man who experienced very high highs and very low lows in his time of ministry. And here we see one of Peter's low lows, perhaps Peter's lowest of lows, 
when he denied the Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter had a moment of weakness, but there's an important thing about Peter's story. Peter wasn't finished yet. Because unlike Judas, whose great failure was not getting back up, one of the great successes of Peter's life was that after he fell, he got back up and he finished strong. He finished the race that God had before him. And so we'll look a little bit more at that in a little bit. But uh, after the Jews had uh, an illegal, that illegal trial, because the, what they were doing was very much against the law with Jesus, but they brought him before Caiaphas, and then they brought him before, I mean, before Annas, and then they brought him before another of the religious rulers named Caiaphas, and they had uh, a very illegal trial in the night. Uh, they, they then brought Jesus to the next man that we're going to look at. He was the Roman governor over that, uh, that area called Judea. His name was Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate served as the governor over the Roman province of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, which would have encapsulated perfectly the ministry of Jesus uh, under the Roman emperor Tiberius. And during this time period, there was a lot of tension in uh, Judea. There were insurrections and rebellion by local Jews who felt like the Romans were suppressing their political and their religious rights. And so these little rebellions would bubble up. And, and you, you might be familiar from the story that, that the Jews asked for uh, Barabbas to be released rather than Jesus. Barabbas was one of those revolutionaries. Uh, maybe he was a local folk hero or, or whatever, but he was actually one of those revolutionaries. And so there was a lot of political and religious tension between the Jews and the Romans. And uh, during his reign as governor, Pilate often found himself in conflict uh, with the Jews because of that. Uh, there were several incidents that resulted in violence as the Jews would uh, resist Pilate's public institutions. And at one point it got to such a head that the Jews actually wrote a letter directly to the Emperor Tiberius complaining that they were being oppressed unjustly. And in turn, Tiberius wrote to Pilate a rebuking letter warning him that he better uphold all of the political and all of the cultural and all of the religious customs of the Jews in the name of peace and, 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 and try to suppress all these rebellions and such that was going on. And so that's probably why uh, we see such a timid uh, handling of Jesus by Pilate because he was kind of walking this tightrope and uh, he was caught between these radical Jews who wanted to, um, you know, kill Jesus and destroy him and, and keeping the peace from, from this governor or, or from the emperor who was, who was kind of bringing the thumb down on him. And let's see. The religious leaders brought Jesus to Pilate because they didn't have the authority to execute prisoners. And that was their goal. They wanted to execute Jesus. They, they, were, they were not happy with anything short of execution. And so that's, how they, that's why they brought him to him. But as Pilate began to question Jesus, 
he, um, he found no guilt in him. He didn't find any crime in him, which he didn't have. And if you read the passage here, we're not going to read it all, but, but throughout the passage, Pilate attempted to release Jesus four times. Four times he, he said, I find him not guilty, I want to release him. They, no, kill him, kill him, crucify him. And uh, one of the things that Pilate did in an attempt to find out if there was any guilt in Jesus was is that he had him flogged. And uh, we'll read it here. It says uh, in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Now, something about flogging. Uh, you know, historically, it was something that can be verified as a Roman method of interrogation. And what would happen is, is that they would strip the prisoner of his, of his upper garment and they would, they would tie his, his hands to a post in such a way that the skin on the back would be stretched and, and, and tight. And then a, a soldier would take a multi-tailed whip uh, with shards of glass and lead woven into the ends of it and they would strike the prisoner, which in turn would rip and tear and... and, and mar up the flesh of the back, extremely painful, extremely brutal. And the idea of flogging was that as, as the prisoner was whipped and beat, it, it was, the purpose of it was to elicit confessions of crimes. And so uh, if the prisoner would confess a crime during the flogging, then the beating would get less and less and sometimes stopped uh, before the maximum sentence of, of 39 uh, beatings, 39 lashes. But if the prisoner stayed silent, then the guards were instructed to intensify the beating and intensify the beating in an attempt to elicit that confession of the crimes. And so that was the, that was the, 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 the method of a, of a flogging. But there was a problem. Jesus was innocent. He had no crimes to confess. And so he received the maximum punishment by flogging. And his back was first striped and then destroyed. You know, he was completely... You know, the Bible says that between the striking of his face and the destruction of his back, that when you looked at him, you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. And so Jesus, right here, uh, part, this is part of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy given in, in Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says, But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. And so through this intense interrogation, you know, Jesus remained silent. He received the stripes 
for our healing. By His stripes we are healed. Amen? And um, something interesting, Pilate knew the purpose of the flogging. He had seen many of the floggings uh, from other prisoners. And the fact that Jesus said nothing throughout the intense beating that He took would have proved without a doubt to Pilate that Jesus was innocent. Because even innocent men would often succumb to confession in an attempt to stop the pain. What have you got to lose, right? But Jesus being silent would have proved without a shadow of a doubt to Pilate that, 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 that he was innocent. And that's why when he brought him out, he said, I find this man innocent. He's done nothing wrong. There's no guilt in him. Continuing in verse 5. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die, because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? And here's the key. Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it was given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Something to note here is that Pilate had a misunderstanding of the situation that he was in. You see, Pilate thought that he was judging Jesus. But Pilate was actually judging himself. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 22, it tells us that Pilate asked the question, then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called the Messiah? You see, each and every one of us are faced with that question today. We're caught between this world who seeks to destroy the Savior, who seeks to destroy Jesus. We're caught between this world that's trying to corrupt our judicial system and our schools, who's trying to corrupt us through entertainment methods, and, and, and is, is, is making every single attempt to destroy Jesus Christ from this world. We're caught in between them and this awesome supernatural Savior of the world who says, follow me. And each and every one of us is posed with that question, what will I do with this man called Jesus? What am I going to do with him? How we answer this question will ultimately determine how we're judged by God. You know, in John chapter 3, Jesus said that He did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. But He said, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The only thing that will ever condemn a man to hell is his rejection of Jesus Christ. All other sins were covered for 
and paid for on the cross. But if someone chooses to reject the Lord, if they say, well, what will I do with this man Jesus? And like Pilate, they choose to reject the Lord. That is the condemnation. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. They choose the darkness over Jesus. So, continuing here in verse 12. It said, Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover, and Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Lost my place. Uh, Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over over to them to be crucified. What should I do with this man, Jesus? Sadly, Pilate didn't finish strong. Despite all of the irrefutable evidence of Jesus' innocence before him, he refused to believe the Savior, and he delivered him over to be crucified. And I want to tell you this morning, do not be deceived. The evidence of Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected from the dead, is as scientifically and empirically irrefutable as anything that could be proven in history. It's irrefutable evidence if you'll look at it with an unbiased eye and an unbiased mind. But the Bible says that Satan has brought darkness and blindness over the eyes of the world. And those who reject Christ only reject Him because they come to Him with a with a, with a prejudiced and a presumptuous mind and heart. The evidence of Christ as Savior is irrefutable and irrevocable. We've got to answer that question, though. What will I do with this man named Jesus? From Pilate's court, Jesus was carried, carried his cross to Golgotha, where he was nailed to it and crucified. Now, the physical pain of being suspended in the air, hanging by nails through your hands and feet, was absolutely excruciating. And then as Jesus hung there hour after hour, his lungs began to fill with his own blood, and he began to drown in his own blood. It was the suffering that he had to endure for our sins. But on top of that, in that moment of great pain and great suffering, the Bible says that the sins of the world were laid upon his spirit. Every sin created, every sin committed from the beginning of man to our lifetimes, past our lifetimes, to the end of this world was laid upon Jesus. 
He bore it upon His soul. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine. I think about the guilt that I have whenever I do something wrong and, and how intense it can be. The sins of the world were laid upon Jesus. And in that moment, because of God's righteousness, God had to turn His back on, on Jesus. For the first time in His life, He was disconnected from the presence of God because the wages of sin is death. And that death is not a physical death, but a spiritual death. When we are, our sin separates us from the Lord, separates us from God. And in that moment, with the sins of the world upon Him, with the pain of crucifixion in His body, God turned His back on Him and He said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? But then, He uttered those great and awesome words that are so, so glorious for us to hear. In verse 30, it says, When Jesus had tasted it, He said, It is finished. Then He bowed His head and released His spirit. You see, Jesus finished strong on earth. Despite all He had done before, He saw it through to the cross. And though He had set His heart on the cross in the garden, how many of you know that His intentions would have meant nothing if He hadn't have followed through? You know, His intentions would have been good, but they wouldn't have meant anything if He hadn't followed through and finished strong. And recall in the garden, whenever he had asked Peter, James, and John to pray with him, and he came back and he found them asleep, he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Sadly, that's where a lot of us find ourselves all too often. You know, in a, very, in a spiritual moment or an emotional moment, we make a commitment to God. You know, we, we, we tell God that we're going to live for Him. We're going to serve Him. Some of you may even have a specific calling on your life that you've identified. And you told God that, that I'm going to follow that. I'm going to fulfill that. I'm going to walk in that. But all too often, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we find ourselves as we get back into our normal lives, as Sunday turns into Monday and Monday turns into Tuesday and Tuesday turns to Wednesday and we're at work and, and the kids are sick and, and we got to get our to-do list done and we find ourselves moving more and more from the Spirit into the flesh, we find that the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and we don't finish strong. I want you to understand this morning that we'll finish poorly if we're trusting in our own strength. It is only when we submit completely to God and His Word as Jesus did that we find the, the strength to finish strong. And here's the big idea. If you don't get anything else this morning, I want you to get this. I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up. It is vitally important to the kingdom of God that we finish the work that God has put before us. The calling on your life is vitally important to the kingdom of God. The calling, the, the purposes, you know, the Bible says that God purposed you for good works from before the beginning of time. 
And I want to tell you something. There's a possibility that if we don't do the things that God called us to do for the kingdom, that they might just not ever get done. You are vitally important to the kingdom of God. And it is vitally important that we finish strong. But even after His death on the cross, Jesus being our example, continued to finish strong. Now in order to understand Jesus' ministry between His death and His resurrection, we need to understand a little bit about life after death uh, before Jesus rose from the dead. Now the Bible teaches this over and over again. This isn't uh, hooey that I'm giving you here. This is, this is biblical. But the Bible tells us that there is, a, there is a temporary place of the dead where people go when they die. Before Jesus, this place of the dead, and you, you might have heard the words, there's, there's, two, there's two words for it. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. You ever seen that when you're reading the Psalms, maybe, or stuff like that? That's the Hebrew word for it, and the New Testament word for it is Hades. And the most uh, detailed account of this place is given by Jesus in his story about Lazarus and the rich man. In uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31, Jesus gives details about this place. And before Christ came, uh, there was, there was this, this place, Hades, this place of the dead, was separated by, two, by, by a large expanse into two areas. One was called Paradise, or Abraham's bosom. That's where Lazarus went when he died because he believed. He was a man of faith. And, uh, you know, the Bible says that, that Moses is there ministering to people as they wait for the resurrection of the Lord. And then the other side was a place of punishment where the rich man went in the story. And, and you know, you, you may know the story. The rich man called out to Lazarus and, and, and called out to, to Moses. And, and he said, uh, oh, just bring me a glass of water. You know, I'm so thirsty. I'm being punished. And he said, no, we can't go over there because it's, it's separated by a great expanse. And, and um, anyway, it's biblical. And so before Jesus came and redeemed man, the men of faith would go to this, this they would go to Hades in the, in, the, in the paradise side, and they were waiting on Jesus to finish his work on the cross to redeem man so that man could, could, could be counted righteous in Christ and therefore be in the presence of God in heaven. Uh, and, and so up, up till Jesus, that's how it was. You'll have to read it yourself. I'm running out of time. Uh, so, the Bible tells us that when Jesus died, that he went down to Hades, into the paradise side, and that he preached to the captives who were, who were held captive by death. And then when he rose again in the resurrection, that all those who had believed before him were raised from the dead into the presence of God. Because Jesus had redeemed them, now they could go to heaven. It's the ministry of Jesus. He was finishing strong. Now the lost side of Hades remains unchanged. The lost dead will stay there until the last judgment spoken of in Revelation chapter 20 when the sea will give up its dead and all will come before the Lord and be judged according to their decision with Jesus Christ. But he went down there and he, he ministered. You know, you read those scriptures in the prophecies that he, he ministered to the captives. He set the captives free. That's what it's talking about. He continued to work even after his death on the cross. Uh, he rose from the depths of the earth as the resurrected Lord. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, John, Peter, 
and many others to impart faith to them to begin the church. You can read it here in John chapter 20. He imparted the Holy Spirit to those who believed on earth so that they could be born again. And then He ascended into heaven, the resurrected Lord, to be with the Father until He would come back again. But He didn't stop there. He continued to finish strong. Uh, We won't go there because of time, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can read how the Apostle Paul talked about how without the resurrection of Christ, our faith would be empty and useless. You see, even after His death, Christ had to finish strong unless humanity would be left hopeless with no hope and no future. Hebrews tells us of how He continues to finish strong. In Hebrews, Jesus is described as our perfect leader, our brother, our eternal high priest, our source of eternal salvation, our king, our intercessor, our sacrifice for sin, and the mediator between us and God. You see, He continues to work in this capacity so that we can, so that we can be redeemed. Jesus knew that He had to finish strong so that God's plan, the church, could be fulfilled here on the earth. But it doesn't stop there. Because one day Jesus will return to the earth and destroy all those who reject Him. He will redeem this fallen world. And as He, as he comes again, He will set His foot on the earth. And the, the Bible says that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. And as He steps onto the earth, and we talked about it earlier, the Bible says that He will destroy all who oppose Him, all who have rejected Him by the word of His mouth. And then He'll establish His kingdom here on the earth. And for a thousand years, the Bible says that we will reign with Him as kings and priests on the earth. And then after a thousand years, the Bible says that the devil will be released one last time to tempt mankind. And He'll come and He'll raise one last rebellion. And then Jesus will stand and defeat all of His enemies and cast Satan and, and, and the lost and, and the Antichrist into the lake of fire. The Bible says that then heaven and earth will pass away and a new heaven and a new earth will be established. And because of Jesus' work, at that point, we will live with God forever and ever in the glory of the Lord. Thank God that Jesus finished strong. Amen? It's an awesome thing. But in closing here, what about us? What about us? who maybe at times bobble things? What about us who are like Peter and Judas who don't always get it right? You know, Jesus is our perfect example. But we know that sometimes we're not in the place where we're finishing strong. You know, in John chapter 21, it talks about Peter and some of the disciples and they were fishing. They decided... They were sitting around. They had already seen the resurrected Lord a couple of times. But they, Peter, Peter said, let's go fishing. And so they went out. They went out into the boat. And the Bible says that they fished all night. And they didn't catch anything. And then Jesus appeared on the shore. And he said, cast your nets out one more time. And so they did. They cast their nets out. And when they pulled it up... The Bible says that there was 153 large fish in the net. And John looked at Peter and he said, It is the Lord. 
And so Peter jumped in the water and he, he swam to the shore and he went and met Jesus and the disciples brought the net up and they made breakfast and they had breakfast with Jesus and then after breakfast, Jesus set his attention on Peter and he said in, in verse 15, he said, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Now Jesus, in the Greek, they have several words for love. And Jesus said, Peter, do you, do you agapeos me? Do you love me intimately like a husband loves a wife or like a brother loves his brother? Do you love me intimately like God loves man? And Peter said, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you. And that word phileo means to, to, to care for as an acquaintance, to be acquainted with. Now I'm convinced that Peter had an intimate relationship with Jesus. But his statement here indicates that he was still stuck in his failure. He was still stuck to that point where he was ashamed that he had failed to identify himself with the Lord. And so here in verse 16 it says, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you, do you agapeos me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I phileo you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, and this time it was different, he said, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked a question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, that third time, Jesus realized Peter's situation. He realized that he hadn't, that he wasn't at the point of elevation, but that he was still stuck in his failure. And he came down to Peter's level. He said, do you flail me, Peter? You see, Jesus will always meet us where we are. He'll always come down to us. And if we'll submit to God, will truly repent in our heart Jesus will set us on the most direct path back to his perfect will it's the great difference between Christianity and the religions of the world all the religions of the world lay out methods and processes by which man tries to bring himself to the elevation of God but Christianity is God humbling Himself and submitting Himself through Jesus Christ and coming down to our level and redeeming us exactly how we are. That's Christianity. So wherever we are in life and our relationship with God, if we will submit to Him, He will meet with us and put us on the path to finish strong. You know, it saddened Peter that Jesus had to come down to his level.
Perhaps he still had his mind on the intimate relationship that they once had. Perhaps he thought that Jesus couldn't use him anymore. However, if you look closely, Jesus wasn't focused on the failings of Peter. Jesus was focused on Peter finishing strong. He said, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep, Peter. You see, God isn't so concerned about what we've done in the past. He wants us to finish strong. I'm so thankful for that. Verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. See, that's God's word to us today. That's God's word to you. Follow me. You know, this morning you may be like Peter and Judas. You may have fallen down. You may have failed. Listen to me very closely. Get back up. Don't stay down. You may be like Pontius Pilate today. Up to this point in your life, maybe you've chosen to please the world rather than to please God. You may still be juggling the question, what what should I do with this man, Jesus? In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to If you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life, we're going to make sure today that you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are in Christ, that you're born again. Don't miss this opportunity of what shall you do with this man named Jesus. And wherever we are, we should look to Jesus who continues to finish strong to this day because Jesus is our example. And like him, we need to finish strong. Amen? Everybody stand up. Just close your eyes. Stick with me. I know I'm late. I'm sorry. Um, Right now, if you would just close your eyes in a moment of prayer, I want to ask you first, what should we do with this man, Jesus? If there's anybody in this place... If you're not sure that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, if you're not 100% sure that if you died today that you would go to heaven, I just want you to raise your hand real quick. Just raise it up. Is there anybody in here? Anybody? Okay. Nobody raised their hand. If, if, if it is and you were just afraid in this moment, you know, the Bible says that, that all, we, all we have to do is believe in Jesus' work on the cross and we will be saved. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not sure what to do with this man called Jesus, today when you go home, just just pray a a simple prayer of faith. 
telling, telling God that, that you believe in Jesus, you believe his work on the cross, and that you trust in that to save you from your sins. But right now, I want to talk to the Peters and the Judases. I want to talk to those of you who have, who have fallen down, maybe fallen into apathy, maybe fallen into sin. God's speaking to people to get back on track right now and finish strong. And so right now, if you just want to relate to that, I'm going to close in a prayer. And if you want to relate to that, just raise your hands with me. Raise a hand, whatever you want to do. And let's pray together that God would empower us to finish strong. Amen. Lord Jesus, God, I know that you see the hearts of each and every person here, Lord. I know that you see their hearts, God. I know that you see their repentance, God. I know that you see how we want to serve you, God. And Lord, we say that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, God. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray right now that that you would empower us by your spirit, God. Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to your word, God. And you would help us to be faithful to the place of prayer, Lord. By the, not by our own power, God, but by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you would empower us to finish strong, God. In Jesus' name, amen. And now, uh, just in closing, if our prayer partners would come forward, uh, if you'd like to pray with somebody, if you'd like to know more about making Jesus the Lord of your life, if you'd like to join our church, uh, you can just come forward now and somebody will be up here to pray with you. I'm sorry I was late. You guys have a great day and, uh, and thank you for your attention.